So last night, John was speaking about some of the distortions of perception and distortions of view um, that have an outcome of suffering and confusion and distress. And this evening, I'd a little bit like to explore the way that those distortions in view also manifest in distorted thinking that equally leads to distress. It's very important that we can understand the world of thought in a way this is the life of our mind. Um, It is a world we spend a lot of time living in, see life through, see ourselves through. It happens so quickly, it can seem so constant, so um, pervasive. And yet, the mind is something to be understood. It invites that understanding. It's not something to bypass, not something to get rid of. But to be understood, and of course one of the ways that the mind, life of the mind mostly manifests is in through thought processes. Now I'm going to, um, with apologies, throw another poly word at you. Um, because once I translate this word, you'll be happy I threw this poly word at you. Because the translation is a very big one to carry around. So I want to talk about a process, about a process, about a psychological process. And the word in Pali is papancha. And I think if you're going to remember any Pali word, it would be a gift to remember this one. I think it's lovely. It sort of rolls off the tongue, you know, papancha. You know, sounds a little Italian, doesn't it? (laughs) Sounds a little romantic, a little less romantic when we see it in action. But loosely translated, and this is the long version of this word, loosely translated means the proliferation of thoughts and mental events generated by views and reactivity that cloud and distort our capacity to see and understand things the way they actually are. You got the definition? Huh? You want me to re- repeat it? The proliferation of thoughts and mental events generated by underlying views, tendencies, and reactivity that clouds and distorts our capacity to see and understand things the way they actually are. So this process of papancha, as the Buddha spoke of it, is actually the source of much of the agitation and restlessness and anxiety and unease that we experience in our minds and hearts. It's a process that leads us to struggle with ourselves and others. It certainly is part of the process of obsession It's part of the habit pattern that gives energy to rumination. It is certainly part of the energy of preoccupation. Outwardly, because this papancha, this habit of proliferation, distorted thinking, of course, has very major effects in the world in terms of all of the isms that beset our world. Um, I will go into that later. Now, papancha is what happens when inwardly we find ourselves tormented by a mind that just feels too full. It just feels overfull. Papancha is what's happening when we find ourselves falling into places of craving or places of hate. Papancha is what's happening when we find ourselves fearing the future, planning, rehearsing or looping around in the guilts of the past. Papancha is what's happening when we find ourselves lost in fantasy fantasy or constructing stories about ourselves and about others. Papancha is what happens when we find ourselves replaying over and over the unfinished symphonies that we carry through our lives. 
when we find ourselves going around, you know those thought loops you've been around a few times? Perhaps many times? Do you ever just find yourself awed by that? That the mind feels compelled to go around that loop one more time? As if it's going to have a different outcome this time? But that is really kind of the territory, the domain of Papancha. Now I want to read you a masterpiece of Papancha. Um, this is a note written to me by a, a retreatant on a retreat some years ago. And I want to tell you I have her full wholehearted permission to share this with you and to alleviate any anxieties you might have that we store your notes <laughs> to then read out at the next retreat. I'm totally embarrassed. We don't do that, okay? This is a... But this was such a masterpiece, I I truly asked for her permission, okay? Dear Matt, this was in California, by the way, and I knew there was something wrong when I saw this naked woman on a porch of one of the residential blocks. Uh, So the note begins, Dear Managers, So I was taking a walk on one of the paths, think city girl, feeling proud about being adventurous, And all was peaceful until the woods. A big black spider, see picture on back, (laughs) glommed onto my sweatshirt. I began squealing, so much for noble silence, and then started running. I ditched the path and headed for the field to get out of the woods. Unfortunately, I thoroughly disturbed some roosting turkeys, And they started squawking, which scared me, capital letters here. I ran back into the woods and onto the path and picked up the pace. Then it crossed my mind that I was sure to be a mountain lion's dinner. So I tried walking, saying to myself, be mindful, be mindful. But it was all too much, so I said, screw mindfulness. Screw the mountain lions, and I took off at a high rate of speed. For me, anyway, seeing as I quit smoking four days ago, my lungs weren't able to keep up with my legs. As I was cruising past the dead stumps of trees, homes of mountain lions, question, 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 I spotted in passing the dreaded poison oak underlined. I am now convinced... Since I was running, squealing like an idiot and not paying attention, that I am covered in poison oak. I threw my clothes on the floor and washed my face and hands, but I'm worried. I saw the laundry soap in the manager's office, but it didn't seem to be special poison oak soap. I didn't see anything poison oak related. I did notice you have a wonderful supply of Chinese herbs, though. Anyway, what do you recommend I do besides shutting up, love? P.S. I woke up singing in my head, Thank God I'm a Country Boy by John Denver. (laughs) It was probably an omen from the universe. I'm sticking to paved open roads. P.S.S. Can poison oak get inside your body? Because as soon as I changed, I went and ate lunch. (laughs) Well, it's a masterpiece. And, you know, it is actually incredibly humorous, and even to her it was humorous, but mostly humorous in retrospect. This was actually a serious event. You know, it actually happened like that for her. Um, but we can see, I think it's, I, I mean, the reason I, I cherish this is it is such a masterpiece of how a world is created through thought and through anxiety that colors and distorts our capacity to see things the way they are and respond in the light of that seeing. Now, this particular piece of papancha actually took place over probably an hour. But in reality, it can take seconds. 
It can happen in seconds. And it can, the amazing thing is that these constructions can occur countless times in a single day. And just think about, you know, just track your thoughts today, you know, just a little reflection on them. I mean, you know, again, we talk about lunch meals here a lot as examples because they're, you know, highlights of the day. But think about the journey to lunch. You know, starts with a moment of contact, doesn't you hear the bell? Well, you know, that, that's enough to provide plenty of fuel for papancha. Um, you know, the thought arises, oh, i got to get going. You know, maybe I'll get in the front of the line in case the food runs out. No, I don't think I will because then people... I was there yesterday and people all think I'm greedy. But if I don't get in the front of the line, I'm going to have to postpone my lunchtime plans. You know, I might not be able to fit my nap or my walk in. And so we start going. We pass the notice board and we have to have, have a little look. Oh, no notes for me, but there, Julie's had three notes today. And I wonder what's going on with Julie. You know, maybe she's having a hard time. Maybe I should write Julie a note. You know. Why nobody writes me a note? I don't know. You know. Uh, we we can't. We get in line, what's for lunch? You know, it could go on and on. But you get the picture, this sort of kind of psychological kind of um, emotional vandalism that we can seem it's like it's almost addicted to, helpless within. I just want to point out that the, the Buddha had a great deal to say about understanding the world of thought. But actually, he really talked about the possibilities of a human mind to have a remarkably friendly relationship to thought. And actually, the bar that he put forward, actually, I have to tell you, is really, really hard. You know, he said, a well-trained mind thinks the thoughts they wish to think. Right? Got that? <laughs> Got that. Think, think, reflect on that one. Now, some papancha, some of these mental journeys, you know, these thought journeys, they can feel pretty pleasant sometimes. Um, you know, it's not bad. A little fantasy, you know, a little daydream, imagining the future, imagining delightful events. Some of the papancha feels fairly more neutral, you know, just a sort of background commentary um, with no particular emotional charge. Um, and sometimes this papancha can feel and be actually truly toxic. The kind of judgmental thinking we can get into about ourselves or others, the thoughts that go on and on and solidify the truth of those judgments. Um, we can be lost in very, of course, very self-directed, aversive thinking about unworthiness, about inadequacy, um, about uh, being unacceptable. And we see the ways, actually, they just spin round and round and with every kind of circle, circular motion, how indeed the thoughts become much more solid and credible and are actually, you know, wearing, you know, making those kind of neural pathways. What is important, I think, to see that even when the proliferation feels fairly benign or even pleasant or quite harmless, the habit of papancha is not benign because it doesn't have any conscience, this habit. You know, if the mind has a habit of, say, proliferating in fantasy or daydreaming, it's that same habit that's going to perhaps latch on to aversive thinking, fearful thinking, ruminative thinking. It doesn't have any conscience. As the Buddha put it once, he says, I can think of nothing that does more harm than an untrained mind. And he says, I cannot think of one thing that can be a greater friend than a well-trained mind. Now, much of papancha, of course, is an internal activity, but we all know that those internal activities then become very much the sort of 
guiding, guiding uh, forces that direct and shape our speech and our actions and our relationships. Papancha is not all only an internal activity, though. Papancha is actually also a collective activity. You know, the most classic example of this would be gossip. You know, I, I don't like somebody. I really love to find other people who also don't like them. You know, because then we can share our kind of collective aversion, our thoughts, you know. We can share the papancha and it makes it feel more legitimate and it makes it feel somehow more acceptable. Um, There's a lot of collective papancha that goes on in the world. I mean, some of you, you know, are very generation. To me, you probably remember, you know, all the papancha that used to go on about communism taking over the world. Remember all the kind of wars and conflicts that were fought on the basis of that collective papancha? And now, of course, it's best friends. You know, we have a different kind of papancha. But collectively, too, it can become very, very destructive. I think um, there is a Tibetan saying that really refers to this need to take care of the quality of our mind, the quality of our heart. It says, this mind, this body, does the bidding of both the skillful and the unskillful. That this mind, this body, does the bidding of both the wholesome and the unwholesome. That used well, this mind, this body, is a raft to freedom. That used unwisely, This mind, this body, ties us to suffering. Now, papancha is not something that is predetermined. These kind of emotional and psychological storms we find ourselves in do not arrive ready-made. It is a process, like all things in our life. It is a process that can be understood, and it can be liberated. And I do think that part of the invitation of this path is to imagine a mind that is papancha-free. And that is actually a very real possibility for all of us. Now, what papancha is, it is an emotional and psychological habit of constructing, habit of constructing, of obsessing. And, you know, in this tradition, it's pretty much called the habit of dwelling, And that habit persists in the absence of mindfulness. And one of the directions and one of the effects of mindfulness, actually, is to loosen and dissolve this habit and in the the end to uproot this habit of dwelling. Now the Buddha put forward this very simple, kind of straightforward, but also I think a formula with many implications that I spoke about yesterday. I want to go through this again because this is so much part of the process of papancha. Dependent upon contact, there is feeling. What we feel, we perceive. What we perceive, we think about. What we think about, we proliferate about. What we frequently think about and dwell upon becomes the shape of our mind. Now, this is actually the basic formula of papancha. Contact, feeling, perception. With all the associations from the past, the likes and the dislikes, turning into conclusions, into images, into beliefs about ourselves, about the world, it sounds, this process actually, for me, actually sounds fairly complex and it happens incredibly quickly. But what we see that the work of this practice is to slow the process down, to know it, to investigate, to, to investigate it. This we can do. Take an example. Um, we pass the kitchen when lunch is being cooked. So we already have in that moment all the kind of raw materials of papancha. We have the sense of the nose. We have the smell. 
and we have the knowing of smelling. Now, again, these three meeting together are called contact. Now, feeling and perception are pretty much arising um, together. Um, we identify the smell. We, 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 have a, uh, we, uh, we have a name for the smell. Oh, it's garlic. Now, this is actually, at this point, this is still fairly, fairly neutral. But then the associations with the perception start to come in. The, the feeling tones of whether it's pleasant or whether it's unpleasant is actually going to depend a lot on how we have experienced garlic in the past, upon our memories and associations. So we might have one particular form of memory that's not so pleasant. I'm allergic to garlic. You know, the thought arises right away. I remember, then I start remembering all the times I've suffered with garlic. And, you know, we're off. You know, we're off down this line. You know, don't these cooks know about allergies? You know, we shouldn't have garlic in a retreat center anyway. It's not very, you know, spiritual. You know, da, 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 da. Why does everybody cook with garlic? And we're off. The association with, with the smell may actually be of, of a different uh, memory. It might be very pleasant. You know, we might not only need to smell the garlic and, and you know, the, the, our last trip to Italy or the time we fell in love over spaghetti. Um, <laughs> you know, oh, kind of just arises, you know, and we're on a whole different kind of, of journey. Now, we could actually spend a whole day, you know, with that particular obsession. I mean, it is, it is possible and it does happen. Now, what would it be like if we have sufficient mindfulness to slow the process down and we can smell the garlic and it is just garlic? It is just the smell. Now, the solution to all of this kind of manufacturing and proliferating is certainly not to hide ourselves away. You know, that's not the kind of thrust of this practice. Papancha can feel very much like a prison, but the truth is we also hold the key in our hands. We can, actually, transform the shape of our mind. So that this mind that can feel like such an adversary, such a source of suffering, is this very same mind that can be transformed into a friend, a great source of peace. This teaching, this practice, has got nothing to do with, with somehow imagining a thought-free world as a destination. You know, this teaching, this practice, is not allergic to thinking. But there's a tremendous, I think, value given in this practice to learning how to think well, how to think creatively, how to think simply, clearly, how to think in line with the way things actually are. So we can see very much, I think, in our own experience and no doubt in, in many of the people that you all work with, we can see the problem, the storms of thought that overtake, the repetitive loops. So what, is, what are the steps to the solution? The first step we've been cultivating here, it's very much the first step, is just we all need to know how to calm down a little. That's simple. We just all need to know how to calm down. A little, find a little bit more stillness that allows us to be mindful of the mind. We need to cultivate the foundations of balance and calm in order to be able to investigate the mind. And this is an ongoing practice, isn't it? This kind of calming down, learning to attend it again and again to this step, this breath, this moment, coming back. But what we're doing when we're coming back is actually, it's a kind of inner fasting. Rather than feasting on papancha, rather than feeding these thought loops, there is a kind of fasting that is going on. And we're doing this in learning to fast. We're actually learning to take some of that energy out of the thought, st thought storms. 
to step back from some of the agitation that is born of Papancha, because Papancha creates so much agitation about the need to fix, you know, the need to solve, the need to get rid of, um, the need to modify, the desperately trying one strategy after another to avoid what is. Calming the body is a means of calming the mind. It is an intentional practice, it is a cultivation. Rather than feeding the habit of distractedness and restlessness, we are feeding the habit of non-distractedness, of being present. And then we come, as I mentioned yesterday, a little bit closer to the moment of contact, the moment the eyes meet the sight, the body meets the sensation, the ears meet the sound, and the mind meets the thought. And if we are mindful in those moments, we learn we have a choice. We can proliferate or we can simplify. Now, this kind of restraint at the sense doors, you know, that is often encouraged in this practice, is this doesn't always seem to be that alluring or tempting or... But without restraint at the sense doors, we're either at the mercy of Papancha or we become beggars at the sense doors. More sights, more sounds, more thoughts. The Buddha once put it that the wise seek to understand contact. But he started out by saying the world arises on contact. It means this personal world. He said the wise seek to understand contact and the foolish pursue it. (coughs) When we are more awake at the sense doors, we actually are cultivating, again, what is called wise attention. And I think one of the definitions of that is not grasping at the sense impression or the associations with it. When we go past the notice board with wise attention, it's just a note. Unwise attention, we go down the road of speculating, imagining, storytelling. Think of a sound, wise attention, not grasping at the sense impression or the associations with it. It's a bird. Unwise attention, we're already planning our trip to a, where we get our bird book and you know where, uh, what kind of rooks we have here and why they build their nest. You can see it happening all the time. We're adding a story of a past and a future. We can learn, actually, this, this very much this art of non-clinging, to liberate the world from our story about it. It's actually quite a gift. It's what allows us to see anew. Now, when the mind does become more calm, we begin to see the way in which these thought streams hold particular flavors and emotional tones. This is very important. These emotional tones are important to understand because it is the emotional tones that is the fuel that keeps Papancha going. It's the emotional tones that keeps generating, churning out the thought patterns. Um, Traditionally, there's a very short list of these kind of um, dimensions of Papancha, and I've expanded it a little bit, and John will probably have something to say about that afterwards, but... I can live with that. And so, so <laughs> expanded it, just through looking at my own mind, by the way. <laughs> so the first of these kind of tones that, that keeps papancha going, it's, it's craving-based papancha. Craving-based papancha. It's the largely unconscious projections that invest objects, people, and events with the capacity to provide us with happiness and safety and peace. 
We often don't even see how much that is happening in our lives, how much these unconscious projections are happening that says, this has the power to make me happy, this has the power to bring me peace, this has the power, intrinsic power to delight me. These are powers that the mind is investing in objects that they don't actually intrinsically have. But these unconscious projections um, are the basis of expectations and demands, aren't they? I believe you can make me happy, so I expect you to. <laughs> you know, I believe if I have this particular lovely meal, I'm going to be delighted, and I expect it to do that. We're sometimes bemused why it's not quite working the way we think. But they are the basis of expectations and demands that are directed towards people, and they are kind of rooted in this unfulfilled sense of unfulfilled need. It's called tanha. Papancha. I need, I must have, I will be desolate without this. I need the new car, I need the better meditation experience, I, I need some other attainment, I need second portion of lunch, I, you know, I just need. I just need. This is craving-based papancha. It doesn't have any conscience, it will build stories around anything. And the second kind of papancha, we can probably, and, and then see if, if, by the way, if this, this stuff rings any bells with you, you know. I mean, see if you identify with any of these streams. The second one is called ditty papancha. It is a stream of thought revolving around opinions, views, preconceived ideas, beliefs, the shoulds. In fact, mostly when we have an argument or find ourselves in conflict with somebody, it's because there's a clash of ditty-based papancha. You know, my particular worldview happens to be not the same as yours, therefore mine must be right and yours must be wrong. And there's a lot of conflict in the world is actually about this. A lot of ditty-based papancha, this view-based papanchas can say that people are terrible, people are wonderful. Um, you know, life is like this. You know, religions like that. Politicians are like this. You are like this. It's a lot of this view-based papancha, political views, religious views, and of course, we always want to be right. You know, and this this certainly runs terribly through um, Dharma worlds too. You know, I remember when I started first practicing in an, in the greater vehicle at that time. Um, you know, as as they called it themselves, <laughs> as we called ourselves, a greater vehicle. We used to live up on the top of this mountain and look down at the lesser vehicle folks down there in India, and didn't quite know what they were doing. You know didn't quite get it. You know, I cannot believe it. it's so embarrassing when I look back and just actually see how much view I held and had the absurdity of it. And yet at the time, it felt totally legitimate. You know, it just felt totally legitimate. Um, the third kind of papancha, you may have had one or two tastes of, is what is called dosa papancha or aversion-based papancha. It's the base of proliferation that we proliferating thought we direct towards ourselves and other rooted in aversion, dislike. Um, you know, the way that the thoughts build, you know, someone offends you and how then you, you know, you have to find a reason to justify the dislike. So, you know, we, we give a lot of attention to finding the flaws, the imperfections, you know, building up a portfolio of imperfection about another um, until the point is they have absolutely no redeeming qualities. And we're actually sure that's who you are. It's aversion-based papancha. Now, as long as we are prone to both aversion and, and papancha, we will actually do the same thing to ourselves. One innocent slip-up. And it's like we have failed for the rest of our life. You know, you fall asleep in the hall. Or you spill your salad in the dining room in front of everybody. <laughs> and you see the thoughts begin, don't you? I am such a failure. You know, everybody knows it now. You know, 
I can't do this. I'm the worst meditator in the world. I remember, you know, a few years ago, I went to an opening of a monastery in, in England, and they'd flown in all these old Buddhist monks from Thailand, you know, and, and they were pretty ancient, actually, you know, and they were really tired. You know, it's a long journey from Thailand. Anyway, they had lines of, you know, these orange robe monks up on the stage, you know, with hundreds of us down there, you know, all watching them. And it was so amazing, you know, having this big opening celebration, and here's all this line of old monks just nodding off, you know, nodding back and forth, the occasional little, you know. And, and there's all these lines of all these, you know, these lay people just admiring. You know. and, and you know what? They were totally okay with it. They were totally okay with it. Like there wasn't any of this sense of, oh, shame or embarrassment. They were just tired. You know? It's so hard, isn't it, that the way that we find ourselves so unforgiving and the way that that unforgiving nature gets perpetuated through this kind of portfolio of what we call self-judgment, which is really aversion-based papancha directed inwardly. It's a version-based papancha directed, directed inwardly. Um, another quality of papancha which I would like to add to this list is actually fear-based papancha. Cur- currently well endorsed in our world, I would mention, um, but can operate very powerfully on an individual level. The desperate seeking for safety in an unpredictable world, projecting um, the source of anxiety onto people, events, um, the way that, the way that we the world, when seen as a danger, as a threat, is really fueled by this kind of anxious thinking, anxious thinking that's always trying to prepare the next moment, guarantee the next moment, rehearse everything that could happen. It's a very powerful source of papancha. Now, the last one I want to come to, which is perhaps, I would say, almost the root of all the other forms of papancha. It's called mana papancha. All the way that we proliferate and build a world and a story about me. It's the I am. It's the I am. I am wonderful. I am terrible. I'm failure. I'm successful. I'm outstanding. I'm unworthy. Now we see that some of this kind of mana papancha, the story of me, some of it has a very long history, doesn't it? I mean, it may even be a story that other people have told to us. You know, you are like this until we believe it. Some of it has a very long history. And some of these stories of me, the I am, are actually very momentary. It's kind of like the I am of the moment, formed by what is identified with in the moment. We see how the, the shaping of the I am if, I identi- if, if sadness is identified with, I'm sad. You know, if, if uh, pain is identified with, I'm the sufferer. If a difficult emotion is identified with, you know, I might be, I'm unworthy. And we see also, this, it always has a big story. I'm unworthy because, 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 you know. I'm sad because, because, because. And the loops go round and round. And actually... They're incredibly repetitious until they become almost a a default mechanism. There's another kind of manapapancha that I really want to just raise briefly here. It's the story about being a mindfulness teacher. Now, if I hear the most commonly reported, frequently reported issue that we hear on these retreats is actually sometimes the banapapancha about being a mindfulness teacher. If I could give you some of the short list of the thoughts that might come with that, I'm not good enough to do this. I shouldn't be doing this because I have so much personal distress. Um, How can I teach other people to be mindful when I actually feel so mindless myself? You know, how do I be good enough at this? What do I, other people are much better at it than I am. You know, I'll never be good enough to do this. I just want to raise this because I, 
you know, I don't know if any of you are familiar with any of those thoughts. <laughs> but I have to tell you how often we encounter them. And it certainly falls within this realm of mana papancha, the story of I am. Have you also noticed how much torment and distress comes with those thoughts and actually how convincing they can be? They are loops that go round and round. The Buddha put it very clearly that what we dwell upon that becomes the shape of our mind, the shape of our mind can harden into character. In the midst of these flavors of papancha, what we also see that these different flavors of papancha are actually in a dialogue with one another. Fearful thinking creates aversive thinking. Aversive thinking can create a view. A view can create craving. There's a pain in my knee. What's going on? I'm anxious about it. I might become a bit aversive. I might dread coming into the hall even. It might happen again. Oh, I'm a useless meditator. Now that creates craving or, or, or you know, I need to become a better meditator. This is what I need to do. You can see how they're interacting with one another. Now I want to go back to the basic formula again. Contact, the meeting of the sense door, the sensory object and the knowing the feeling that arises, the pleasant, the unpleasant, that which is neither. Perception at the point of feeling. Now, feeling and perception arising. Now, that's the place where papancha begins. But the very place that papancha begins as proliferation is also the place it can end. We see so clearly, and we've mentioned this, that this perception that arises with feeling our ways of knowing the world, our ways of making sense of the world. It's never innocent. I mean, you know, a lot of perception, of course, is just, you know, very practical and useful. We need it to get through life, you know. I, I, you know, without perception, I might try sitting in the bell instead of sitting on my cushion, you know. I mean, it's just useful navigation tools, but of course, we all know that perception actually is not innocent, that it's very tied up with um, the perceptions of the past. Quite silly. We see a person we've had difficulty with in the past. What happens when you see that person? The emotional tone is immediately there. The memory is there. Now, mindfulness, as we've said already a number of times, is, is to, to question, but really... The other day we said that mindfulness is there to sever the link between um, feeling and underlying tendencies. But mindfulness is also there to sever the link between perception and past association. Perception and, and previous association. Because that, 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 that linking between perception and previous association of course, is actually the, the quality that actually prevents us seeing anew, but actually that triggers all, a lot of the papancha. We can see in the face of sights, sounds, thoughts, beginning to build our world, beginning to proliferate. And we can pause, we can learn to pause, not to push it away, not to repress it, but to be able to pause sometimes at the moment of those contacts and ask, what is this? What is this? And, and part of that in this teaching is learning what it means to see anew, to liberate the present and everything in it from the burden of the past. Because it is that burden that is the glue that keeps the story of craving and aversion and fear and view spinning. When mana papancha arises, and it surely does, look closely at the I am in a day. Really an encouragement to look closely at the I am as it arises in a day. 
to see often it's a story about ourselves and that the story needs a storyteller and the storyteller needs a story. If we can, with the practice, start to learn to release the story, the storyteller begins to fall away. If we learn to question the storyteller, also the story begins to fall away. Someone told me once they were on retreat here and they were in one of these very restless states, you know, that you you might be familiar with, you know, where anything looks interesting other than being present. You know, and they, they said they found themselves doing one of those things, weird things you can do on retreat, and they were reading the instructions on the fire extinguisher. <laughs> By the way, this is getting desperate. Um, and the first instruction they read said, aim the nozzle at the base of the fire. <laughs> aim the nozzle at the base of the fire. And they said suddenly they paused. And they had this thought that I need to aim the nozzle at this whole concept of I am, to question it, to kind of cool all the craving and aversion that gets generated around the story of the I am. I used to be, I will be. Um, There's a wonderful piece of Dhammapada says, if you want to know about your past, look at your mind now. And if you want to know about your future, look at your mind now. Unquestioned, the story that is clung to in the moment will be the story of the future. And I think the practice is to open ourselves to the possibility of a different future. Certainly calming the... um, Calming and being more mindful of the process is one of the central ingredients in calming papancha. But insight is really essential in rooting, uprooting the source of papancha, which is very much this I am papancha, born of identifying with emotions, with, with, with stories, with thoughts. When we walk by the kitchen and smell the garlic, We may have a lot of thoughts about the garlic, but it would be highly unlikely that we would ever say, I am the garlic. (laughs) When we listen to a sound of the car outside, we might have a lot of thoughts about the car, um, but we don't think, I'm the car. When we see the note on the notice board, we might have a lot of thoughts about it, pleasant and pleasant, but we would never say, I am the note. Interestingly, we have a very different relationship, don't don't we, with the sensory information of the mind, with the thoughts and the emotions. This is where the identification, of course, arises. The I am miserable, I am... Uh, you know, inadequate, the thought is me. Identified with the thought is me. It's not surprising, really a surprise that we have so many thoughts, but what is actually rather puzzling is that we give so much authority to the thoughts that arise to define the quality of our hearts and lives. Now, I want to... When we talk, uh, I want to offer another little formula that has very little value in the abstract, but when applied to our moment-to-moment experience can be a very profound doorway to transformation. Contact, feeling, craving, grasping, becoming. Trace this if you can in your thought pattern, in in your day. Contact, feeling craving or aversion, grasping and becoming. So contact, we understand this now. And it will happen as long as we live. The world arises on contact. Can be just a momentary flash, or the world arising on contact can be the place where we begin to build my world. 
um, can be a place uh, feeling arises, pleasant, unpleasant, neither. Again, as long as our lives is going to be that spectrum of feeling. We can see it very clearly or we can be very reactive to it. Mindful, we begin to notice the underlying tendencies around feeling, the aversion or the craving. We begin to see with mindfulness that there is a choice. We can jump on that bandwagon or we may be able to walk down a different pathway and see craving as craving, aversion as aversion. What is becoming? Becoming is this place of arrival through grasping, through clinging, where we say, I am. The I am being defined by what is being taken hold of. When we start to begin to see the fabric, the construction of I am, it is possible to hold it a little bit more lightly, to hold it with a little bit, that sense of construction, that mana view, a little bit more lightly, a little bit more spaciously, a little bit more calmly. And we can begin even to perhaps even be a little bit playful. You know, when you see the I, oh, I am miserable, am I? Yeah. I am, I am such a schmuck, am I? And to actually begin to bring that kind of questioning, not in the service of negating I, we've talked about this, but in the service of uprooting suffering. Because we can see that these views that are formed of me are the primary generators of these thought streams that go round and round and round. And actually, if we really want to see the freedom from the thought looping systems, in a way we need to go to the what is really generating their energy and their fuel. And it is this primary central view of mana, of mana papancha, the I am sense. Calming down the mind with, with the practice, we begin to see the process that we can be govern, governed by. We also begin to cultivate the non-dwelling mind, the non-proliferating mind. And then actually we have a mind that's a friend, that can think creatively, can think clearly, that can reflect, that can relate, that can articulate, but that is truly a friend, that's truly not tied in the papancha loops. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.